All right, we are on uh, Life of Christ, book three. This is lesson 53 in the new books, and the title for our message is The Compassionate Christ. Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who gives us comfort in all of our tribulations, that we might be able to comfort others with the trials and tribulations of life that they have. Father God, thank you for this um, truth, these true, true accounts that we'll be looking at this morning, that you actually walked this earth one day, and these aren't just stories in a book. These really, really happened, how you healed a dying servant and how you even raised from the dead a son, a widow's son. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would bless our times to, time together, that your son would be lifted up as only he deserves and that you would hide your servant behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, after the Lord Jesus finished giving the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, which involved only a few hours for him, but took us a whole year, Luke presents for us the next event chronologically. And we find this, if you will look at Luke 7, 1, where it says, now when he, speaking of Christ, concluded all his sayings, what sayings? The Sermon on the Mount. When Christ concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. As we've learned, Capernaum was the very privileged city that Jesus had selected for his Galilean headquarters after those in his own hometown of Nazareth had rejected him. Now, to this point, quick little review here. To this point, the Lord Jesus had performed five specifically recorded miracles in the city of Capernaum. Now, of course, he performed many other miracles in Capernaum, but there are only five which were specifically recorded for us. He healed the nobleman's son in John 4.50, as well as Peter's mother-in-law. And in both of those miracles, he demonstrated his absolute divine authority over disease. And then he had produced a miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, and that demonstrated his absolute authority over nature. And then he had delivered a demoniac in the local synagogue there in uh, Capernaum. That was in Mark 125, and that demonstrated his authority over Satan and, and the demonic realm. And he had healed a paralytic lowered through a roof, but only first after having forgiven the man of his sins. And that was in Matthew 9:7, which demonstrated both his absolute authority over disease and his absolute authority over sin. Now, in other scripture passages that we covered back in volume one of our Life of Christ study, he also demonstrated his absolute authority over tradition, particularly the traditions of Israel concerning what day of the week? The Sabbath. We spent several lessons talking about the Sabbath. And in the great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as he taught his listeners about true righteous living, he also demonstrated his absolute authority to interpret God's law. Now, as the Lord came down off of the hillside, having taught us about the principles of the king in volume two, the Sermon on the Mount, 
Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we're going to engage in an exciting look at the power of the king. And that's what we'll be looking at in this volume three. We're going to be looking at a number of immensely important miracles, including two restorations from the dead, one today we'll look at. We'll look at the calming of a storm with just the power of his word. We'll look at the Lord casting out demons from the demoniac of Gadara and then giving sight to two blind men on one occasion and on another uh, separate occasion he gave sight to another blind man. Then we'll also look this year in volume 3 at the feeding of the 5,000 and we'll see Jesus walking on water. And then we'll also see him calming another storm and then healing a deaf man. And then the feeding of the 4,000. You know, he fed great multitudes on two occasions. One time it was a Jewish crowd. The second time it was a Gentile crowd. And then we'll look at the real unveiling of his power when we finish the Life of Christ book. I think the last lesson in this third book is the Transfiguration. In Matthew 8 and 9, there are a total of 12 miracles that we'll be looking at. And we'll also be looking at some wonderful sermons as well. In this volume, I think, we will find the ordination sermon when he sends his disciples out on their first missionary journey without him. He sends them out in pairs. And then we'll be looking at, I know, the Bread of Life sermon, which is a very, very critical sermon. And I know there's some more in there, but I can't think of what they are right now. But if a king does not have power, then his principles don't mean anything. But this king had power. He has the dynamic to enforce the laws of his kingdom. But this king not only had power to back up his principles that he had taught in the sermon, but he also had, and I know you're thankful for this, he has compassion which further backed up all the principles that he had just taught in the sermon, such as humility and being merciful and loving even your enemies and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. He's going to illustrate everything that he had just taught. We will see in this lesson and also the next lesson when you come back, but when you come back on the 21st, we're going to see the second part of this study, and we'll learn how the Lord responded with loving compassion and healing power to those of faith, to those in despair, and to even those in doubt. And the one in doubt next time we'll see it was John the Baptist. Now in part one, which I've called Jesus' response to faith, he demonstrates compassion to a Roman centurion by healing his dying servant. And then in part two of our lesson this morning, we're going to see the Lord's response to despair as he demonstrates compassion to a widow who has just lost her only son. The good news for you and me is that Jesus Christ is the same today as he was yesterday and as he will be forever. That's the good news, and that's good because there simply is no greater comfort available for the pain and the sorrow and the hurt and the sadness of man than the compassionate Christ. So aren't you glad he not only has power, but that he has compassion? 
that he is a compassionate king. All right, let's look, first of all, at his response to faith. We're going to look at Matthew's account first, and then I'm going to read Luke's account. And the reason I'm reading them both is because they have different facets of this uh, account of the healing of the centurion's son. So look with me, starting at uh, Matthew 8, verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Okay, now let's look at Luke's account. Luke chapter 7. And keep these two places because we'll be flipping back and forth looking at different things. Luke 7, verses 1 to 10. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick. And how sick? Ready to die. That's Luke telling us, remember, Luke's the physician. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was not, now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, For I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. In both Matthew and Luke, we are introduced to a man of great integrity. Also a man of authority and, like the Lord, a man of compassion and faith. He was what we could call a man's man. And yet he was also God's man. He was a man who was also held in high esteem by even those who should have been his enemies. Yet he called himself what? Unworthy. 
With all of these virtues to his credit, however, the Holy Spirit saw fit to not even mention this man's name. We do not know his name. We just know he was the Capernaum centurion. That's hard to say, put those two words together. He was the centurion from Capernaum. And perhaps we didn't get his name because he is, he is the type of beatific person we all should be. Isn't it fitting, don't you think it's fitting that this is the man we first meet after the Lord Jesus Christ had ended his teaching on true, righteous character and living in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting is, (laughs) what's surprising, is that this sterling example of a beatific man, of a Sermon on the Mount man, was a Roman soldier. He was a centurion, a man, a soldier, who was in charge of how many men? A hundred men. And what's amazing is that he was, if he was Roman, what was he? Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile. Centurion officers were really the backbone of the Roman army. And generally, they received their rank because of their character and their military skills. Normally, a man like this would have been greatly despised by the Jews who lived under the the very heavy yoke of of, uh, Roman oppression. But this wasn't the case with this particular soldier. He was like Cornelius over in Acts 10. Apparently, like Cornelius, he was a God-fearing man. And consider also the centurion named Julius in Acts chapter 27, who saved the Apostle Paul's life when the men on his ship wanted to kill all of their prisoners uh, for fear that when the ship crashed, all the prisoners would escape. But Julius, the centurion, saved Paul's life. He had compassion. And then, too, there was the centurion at the foot of the cross who, after watching the Lord die, said what? Truly, this was the Son of God. It's amazing. There are, I think I read a total of 10 centurions mentioned in the scriptures, and every one of them was a man of integrity, a man of character. The Capernaum centurion in our account here had a sincere affection for the Jewish people. And even somewhat more amazing, that affection was reciprocated Not only did he love them, but they loved him. We're told that the elders of the city, that's not the elders of the synagogue, but that's the elders of the city, went out to seek Jesus on the man's behalf. And they told Jesus that this man was worthy and he was deserving of the Lord's favor. Isn't it marvelous to realize that the Lord Jesus and God, who is God, that... They, the Godhead, are no respecter of persons. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous? Uh, And this is, of course, what Peter came to realize when he went to visit who? Cornelius, the centurion. There is no nationality. There is no social status. There is no occupation. There is no skin tone. There is no handicap. There is no sex barrier that keeps a truly broken and contrite heart from knowing God. Yay, amen. Even though Matthew 8, and make sure you realize this, Matthew 8 
is not given to us chronologically. So what you read in Matthew 8 is not, and that's why we're using a harmony of the Gospels, so that we get the order step by step that the Lord took. Matthew 8 was not given to us in chronological order, and yet the Holy Spirit, you know, he always has his reasons for what he does, but the Holy Spirit seemingly used the sequence of events that we find in Matthew 8 to purposely demonstrate what the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is basically all about, and that is that to God it is what that matters. It is the heart that matters to God. You see, four of the categories of people that Israel's um, religious rulers considered outcasts are shown compassion in the first three miracles that we find in Matthew chapter 8. Now, those four of the categories that the religious rulers of Israel considered outcasts were lepers, Gentiles, slaves, and women. Lepers, Gentiles, slaves, and women. In fact, one of the common morning prayers of many of the Pharisees was this. I give thanks that I am a man and not a woman. You know what? I'm glad I'm a woman and not a man. <laughs> that, that they would say, I give thanks that I am a man and not a woman, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile, that I am a free man and not a slave. That was one of their morning prayers. Now, we already know from one of them who was in the temple, remember, with a publican, that they also gave thanks to God for not being publicans. So, so we can imagine they also gave thanks that they weren't a leper. So, you know, there we have lepers, Gentiles, women, and slaves. However, the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And to do that, he crossed all man-made barriers in his compassionate love to reach people for his eternal kingdom. So in Matthew 8, look at the first uh, four verses there. In Matthew 8, we find that the Lord Jesus reached out and touched a leper and made him clean. Now, we've already studied this miracle. We studied it back in, in volume 1. And then uh, in, in the, verse we're, the verses we're looking at today, we see him commending the great faith of a Roman centurion or a Gentile. So first thing he did is reach out and touch a leper. Then he, he uh, healed, did a favor for a Roman centurion, granted his request to heal his servant. Remember how they gave thanks? That they weren't servants or slaves. And then we see him the next event in verses uh, 14 and 15, that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Now, chronologically, we've already looked at that miracle. It's already happened. But you see the sequence that is found in Matthew's gospel? First a leper, then a Gentile, then a servant, and then a woman. The righteousness which is available in Jesus Christ, by faith in him, is for who? The entire world. He tasted death for every man. He tasted death for every man. The, the, the most Jewish of all four of the gospel accounts is which one? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? The most Jewish is Matthew, right. Matthew was written primarily with Jewish readers in mind. 
And yet Matthew stresses this truth that Jesus Christ is available to all men. He stresses this from beginning to end, from beginning when uh, the Gentile magi came to the young Jesus to offer him gifts. They actually believed it. They were Gentiles. And they saw his star in the sky and they came to worship him. And then if you can, all the way, all the way through Matthew, you see how he constantly tells us that the gospel is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he ends up his account by telling us to take the gospel where? To all nations. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You know, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The Roman centurion had an unusual relationship with the Jewish people. It is stated by the, uh, the Jewish elders that he loved their nation. He loved what nation? Israel. He loved the Jewish nation of Israel. And he had actually financed their synagogue. Now here is a real picture of that synagogue which he financed. It's one of the few places you can go to in Israel where you can say 100% sure that Jesus walked here. It still remains today. And here is another picture of it. I was there. I walked there. I didn't take these particular pictures, but there it is. And who financed that synagogue? This Roman centurion. His affection for the Jewish people was demonstrated affection. He loved them, so he gave. This love of a Roman for the Jewish people was very unique because most of the Romans despised the Jews as much as the Jews despised the Romans. However, this man's love for and his blessing on Israel was very wise. So we find that the man was also very wise. Why was it wise for him to love Israel and the Jewish people? Because it is biblical. Those who do not love Israel, like most of the world today, put themselves in a very perilous position. Because God has promised, regarding this very special nation, he said, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curseth thee. This is God's promise. And if you look through history, you will see that he keeps his word. The centurion of Capernaum also, not only did he have an unusual relationship with the nation of Israel, but he had an unusual relationship with his servant. Now, the original Greek tells us that his servant was a young doulos, which is a bond slave. And he was a, um, a, probably a young man. I think he was a young man. I think the Greek shows us that he was a young man. Now, the general attitude of a Roman toward his slave was one of callous indif indifference, you know, even in the case of, of illness. And it was one of cruel insensitivity with regard to um, workload. You know, they gave him a lot of work to do, and they really didn't care if they got sick. That's the normal attitude. The Roman writer Varro stated that the only difference between a slave and a beast of burden was that the slave could speak. That was nice, wasn't it? I guess he had never heard about Balaam's little problem. 
Yet this centurion was compassionate toward his servant. And what does Luke 7, 2 tell us? That that servant was dear to him. And that Greek word for dear shows affection, entimos. It speaks of one who is precious to him. He loved this servant. He cared a great deal for his servant. And that is apparent from his willingness to, to do so much in order to spare his life. So not only did he, he love Israel, but he demonstrated his love by financing their synagogue. He loved his servant, but he demonstrated that love by what? By going so far out of his way to get him healed. You know, sending for Jesus. The Roman centurion demonstrated genuine mercy. <clears throat> And consequently, he obtained mercy. Remember, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The Lord responded to his request to heal his palsied, which means paralyzed. He was sick of the palsy. He didn't necessarily, he wasn't paralyzed because he had fallen and, you know, had an accident, as some paralysis is caused from. His was a sickness. And, you know, another thing, it says uh, in Matthew 8, 6, that he was grievously tormented. A lot of times, at least if you're paralyzed, you don't feel your pain. It, it numbs your pain, but not so in this young servant's case. He was sick of the palsy. He was paralyzed, but he was in grievous torment as well. And then what else did we learn from Luke? He was ready to die. He was at the point of death. So here again we have... A humanly impossible situation. <clears throat> and the, the centurion, we find, was, was very, very kind for a man of his position, a man of his culture, and a man of his time. We could say that he is the centurion who won his battles peacefully. He was a peacemaker. He was also a humble man. Remember that true godly righteousness starts with what? Poverty of spirit humility because no one comes to jesus christ to ask him for forgiveness of their sin without being poor in spirit without humility humility is one of the greatest evidences that there is of a changed life the centurion said to jesus i am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof wherefore neither thought i myself worthy to come unto thee he not only sensed his unworthiness to ask Christ to come into his home, and don't you know he had a nice home? It wasn't like he had a little shabby sh uh, shack somewhere. I'm sure he had a very nice home. But he sensed his unworthiness to not only ask Christ into his home, but he also felt unworthy to come himself to Christ. Are we not, isn't that neat? Are we not unworthy that Christ should have come down from heaven to our home? And are we not also unworthy to come to him? That's how this centurion felt. And it's a perfect picture of how, you know, true poverty of spirit. He reminds me, really, of uh, John the Baptist in this, who said he was not even worthy to do what? Uh, unlatch the, uh, the Lord's shoes. And he reminds me also of the apostle Peter, at least on one case, <laughs> uh, when he got a glimpse of just exactly who Jesus is after the Lord had filled his fishing nets too full and bursting, bursting over. And what did Peter do? He fell on his face and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. If the centurion 
had been a lowly peasant, his words and his actions would not have given Jesus as much honor. But for a man of his rank and of his authority and of his wealth to step aside to give Jesus Christ the highest honor, that makes the honor for Christ that much greater. You know, for example, when a king bows before Jesus Christ, he is king of kings. That gives him all the greater honor. Against the dark background of, uh, of the pride of both Rome and Israel's own religious leadership, this man's humility shines as a brilliant star in the nighttime sky, doesn't it? Just think how proud Rome was, and he represented Caesar and Rome, and how proud the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. And doesn't this man shine all the more brightly? He does. Now, in comparing the two gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, it would seem that the centurion, this gets a little confusing, but it would seem that the centurion first, well, this is pretty evident, he first sent the Jewish elders of Capernaum to Jesus to present his request. And you can read this in Luke 7, verses 3 to 5. He sent the Jewish elders. And those elders of the Jews were the leaders of the local Jewish community. Not the synagogue, but the community. If there was a community center, they were the, the, the leaders of it. For them to go to bat for a Gentile in their midst you know, and, and the, the leader of the Roman garrison speaks very, very highly of their esteem for this man. When, then, when the centurion learned or saw that Jesus with the elders, now he's accompanied, you know, they came to him and asked him to come to, and they said he's worthy, you know, come and heal his servant. So Jesus starts to accompany the elders, and then apparently the Roman centurion sees Jesus and the elders approaching his home, he sends out some of his friends to intercept the Lord, and he must have had second thoughts about this. He, he sent out his friends to intercept him to prevent him from coming to his home. So we find that these, and you can read about that in Luke 7, 6, the friends, all right? So we find that the centurion was considerate because he did not want Jesus to defile himself by setting foot in his house. You see, all Gentile homes were considered unclean by the Jews. Did you know that? They were. They were considered unclean. You couldn't, if you were Jew, you were not supposed to set foot in a Gentile home. Now, what do you think? Would Jesus, was he going to set foot in the man's home, do you think? Had he just reached out and touched a leper? Yes, I think he was going to go into the man's home. That was, that's, that's an example of that was man-made law, not God's law. It's interesting, over in Matthew, before and after this miracle, he reached out and touched a leper, and then he reached out and touched a woman. So I believe in this miracle, he would have definitely reached out and touched a, a Gentile servant as well, the Gentile servant. And we don't know if the servant, the servant was probably Jewish, a Jewish lad, but he was doing this for the Gentile. Anyway, um, the man was considerate. And then, perhaps to make sure that his friends conveyed the message in the right spirit. You see, he was really thinking all of this through. So that there would be no chance that the Lord maybe would be dishonored by what his friends would say, you know, how they would convey that message. It, 
it appears that the centurion himself then also came out to do what he had asked others to do on his behalf. If you look at Matthew 8, verses 8 and 9, it sounds definitely like it was the centurion speaking directly to the Lord. And notice in verse 13 of Matthew, it says, Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way. So this looks like what, the, what happened. You know, first the elders of the Jews, then some friends, and then the centurion himself came out to speak to the Lord. Although it's also possible that his friends were merely conveying his words. But regardless of the exact nature in which the centurion's message was conveyed to Jesus, one thing is very clear. His humility and his reverence for Jewish tradition was not only unusual for a Gentile, it was almost non-existent in a Roman soldier. This man gave evidence of a changed heart. He gave uh, evidence of a heart that knew Jehovah God, the God of love and the God of mercy. He gave evidence of a heart that understood its own spiritual poverty apart from the grace and forgiveness of Almighty God. Somebody had gotten through to this man about the true God, is my belief. However, the virtue of the centurion that most impressed the Lord Jesus was the greatness of his faith. So now I know I'm standing on solid ground. He truly had great faith, and we know that because the Lord said it. Perhaps this man had uh, personally witnessed some of the Lord's miracles in Capernaum. He has already performed many miracles in Capernaum. Uh, He had actually, even in the synagogue that he had helped to finance, the Lord had performed miracles, such as the man with the withered right arm. Maybe this man had heard of the healing at a distance of the Gentile nobleman's son. And that man, we speculate, was also a Gentile. Remember, he was in Cana, but his son was dying in Capernaum. And if this man was a Roman centurion in Capernaum, you know he would have heard of this miracle. And so perhaps that miracle gave him hope that Jesus would also help him, even though he too was a Gentile. And now he also knew that Jesus could heal from a distance, right? Well, whatever the situation may have been, the centurion understood two things exceptionally well. First, he understood that just as he had authority vested in him by Rome, so Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, had authority vested in him by by God himself. He understood that as when he spoke, he spoke for Caesar, so too when Jesus spoke, he spoke for God. He understood that as to defy him was to defy Caesar, so too for one to defy Jesus was to defy God. He understood that this divine authority of Jesus was so great that it enabled him to dismiss disease merely by the power of his spoken word. But that was not all that this man understood. He also recognized that a word from Jesus' lips did not have to be spoken in the presence of the one being healed in order for it to be authoritative. Now, that was more than the nobleman believed. He believed Jesus needed to come with him. It was more than Mary and Martha believed, if you remember. They said, you know, if he'd only been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He had more faith than that. 
He believed that uh, Jesus could perform miracles at a distance. Do you believe Jesus can perform miracles at a distance? I hope so because he's up there and we're down here. <laughs> he did not have to physically see, touch, or speak to the one in need of healing in order for that one to be healed. Do you know how the Lord Jesus responds to such marvelous faith as this? How does he respond to this kind of marvelous faith? He marvels. Jeez, don't you want Jesus to marvel at your faith? Oh, I do. So much I do. He marveled. He himself marveled at this man's faith. Luke 7, 9 tells us that Jesus marveled at him. And he turned about and said to the people that followed him, everywhere he went, people were following him. He said, I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. That's an incredible statement. Does that mean that his own disciples didn't have such great faith? Does it? He said, no, not in all Israel. You know, what? what did it, does it mean John the Baptist didn't have such great faith? I mean, that's what he says, doesn't he? You know why it's great faith? The faith that the, the Lord is complimenting in the centurion is his faith in the power of Christ's spoken word. Those with great faith are those who believe in the sufficient and absolute power of Christ's word. Do you have great faith? Do you believe in the absolute power and sufficiency of the word of God? What made this man's faith great, greater than anyone in Israel, was that it was great in, in proportion to the man's privileges. This man didn't have the privileges that Israel had. He didn't have the privileges that the disciples had, did he? They, had, they were all Jews. They had been raised in the synagogue. They had heard the Old Testament. They knew all the Old Testament prophecies. They heard about the Messiah coming their whole lives. And then they had been with the Lord. This is now into his second year. They've seen many miracles, not just in Capernaum, but everywhere he's gone. They have seen him, you know, with the great multitude of fish in their nets. So they had, it was great in, in uh, regard to proportion, it was great in regard to privilege. It was great in that it was so rare for a, a Roman and a centurion to have this kind of faith. It was great in respect. It was great in request. You know, that he asked him to just speak the word and that he could heal at, at a distance. <clears throat> this far exceeded, far exceeded the faith, if you could call it that, of the majority of the Jews who were constantly saying to Jesus, what? Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign, and then we'll believe. Well, that's really ridiculous because the truth of the matter was that he had been giving them one sign after another, and he had been giving them one miracle after another, and he had been fulfilling one Old Testament messianic prophecy after another. They simply did not want to believe. On the other hand, the centurion believed that the word of Jesus Christ was sufficient and absolutely authoritative. And that's what made his faith great. That's more than most professing Christians today believe. And it's more than most pulpits are willing to teach that this word is absolute and sufficient. It is our final authority for faith and practice. That's it. And we believe it, every jot and tittle. Yet to the Gentile, this Gentile, whose background was probably pagan, 
and who had limited, if any, access to the scriptures. The New Testament hadn't be, even been written. So if he had any access at all, it was the Old Testament, and then I don't know how he would have had access to it unless they let him sit in the back of the synagogue uh, and he just heard it that way. But this, this uh, Gentile said to Jesus, speak the word only. I love that, speak the word only. We don't need all the psychology and all the little programs and all the extras, the entertainment. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Ivor Powell in his commentary called Luke's Thrilling Gospel says this. He says, quote, Real faith sees the invisible, laughs at the impossible, and cries aloud in thanksgiving even before the deed is accomplished. End of quote. Now, did you know, and you probably do, that there are only two times recorded in the Gospels where Jesus marveled at anything? Only two times it says that Jesus marveled, and one is in this account when he marveled at the great faith of this Gentile centurion. And the other time, which we have already discussed in our first volume of the Life of Christ study, was when he marveled at the great unbelief of the Jews. Actually, the people of his own hometown of Nazareth. If anyone had spiritual privileges, it was them. They had watched him his whole life. From when he was two years old and moved to Nazareth, they had seen him live a perfectly sinless life. And yet, they didn't believe in him. And he marveled at their great unbelief. It's equally interesting to realize that Jesus only commended two individuals for their great faith. And both of them were Gentiles. Both of them were Gentiles. He commended this noble centurion for his great faith, and he was a man, and he commended a Syrophoenician woman, one man and one woman, for their great faith. Both of them were Gentiles, and both of them, it's also interesting to find, were intercessors on behalf of others. The, no, the centurion on behalf of his dying servant boy and the Syrophoenician woman was interceding on behalf of her, <clears throat> her daughter. So they were both intercessors on the behalf of others. John Butler writes this. He says, you may have fame and fortune in the world, but if you do not have faith in God's word, you will not please God, for without faith it is impossible to please him. The compliments of heaven are reserved for those who have this faith. Heaven does not honor touchdowns, home runs, strikeouts, hockey goals, business success, or political victories, but heaven gives great honor to faith in the word of God. Do you have great faith in the word of God? I hope so. Well, in verses 10 to 12 of Matthew's account, we don't find this in Luke, but in Matthew, we learn that Jesus gave a prophecy which must have really shocked all the Jewish people standing around. He said, in effect, that faith such as this Gentile centurion had exhibited would be duplicated many times over by those who would come into the kingdom of heaven from nations where? Both to the east and to the west. Of Israel, whenever directions are given in the Bible, it's in relation to Israel. And who lived to the east and west of Israel? Gentiles. So uh, heaven would be 
enjoyed by those who did not have the uh, spiritual privileges and the covenant promises that the Jewish people had had for centuries. Christ here was speaking prophetically. If you look at those verses, I've already read them, but he was speaking prophetically of the gathering in of the Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel, which would culminate in their participation, Gentile participation, at the great wedding feast of the king for his son. You can read about that in Matthew 22. I have a little picture of it here. Where they, the Gentiles, would, would dine side by side with who? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The idea that, how many of you are Gentiles? Quite a few of us, many, right? Uh, the idea that Gentiles would be in the kingdom of heaven was abhorrent to most of the Jews. They equated Gentiles with totally depraved sinners. And only the select few who became proselytes to Judaism, you know, those who would be completely conformed to, to their laws and to their ceremonies and their rites, you know, such as circumcision, could even hope to be admitted to God's kingdom. This is what the people, the Jewish people, had been programmed to believe by their religious leaders for centuries upon centuries. So, however, the Lord's words here tell us that many Gentiles, such as this centurion, would enter the kingdom. And that, you know, had to have again his listeners. But he really upset the traditional apple cart of Jewish thought when he then went on to prophesy, but the children of the kingdom, now who is he talking about there? The Jews. He says, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's in Matthew 8, 12. You notice how once again, the Lord talked about hell. You know what? This is our fourth lesson in a row where the Lord Jesus has talked about hell. He talks a lot about hell. And this statement, you know, completely contradicted everything that the Jewish people had been taught by their rabbis. They had been led to believe for centuries that simply because they were the physical seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that they would inherit the kingdom of heaven, you know, provided they observed all the legal ceremonies and the feast days, etc. This was what we talked about last week. Is ra this was basically racial salvation. Unless they were an out-and-out -out murderer and a horrible criminal, because they were Jews, they believed they would go to heaven. They were told that because they were the physical descendants of Abraham, they would one day enter into God's kingdom, and they would feast on Behemoth and Leviathan. You know, those are the only two dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible. Behemoth and Leviathan. Are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Yes. Dinosaurs lived at the same time of men, and it wasn't millions and millions of years ago. Um, and that meant, this is what they were taught, that they would feast on those two dinosaurs, meaning that there would be an unlimited amount of food. <laughs> but Jesus crashed through this proud misconception with the truth. It was not their Jewish blood that would save any of them, but only their faith in God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. 
Well, if the centurion had great faith before his servant was healed, how much greater must have been his faith when his young paralyzed servant was healed in the self same hour? And we're told that in Matthew, and then Luke tells us that he was made whole. That speaks of complete healing. He wasn't just partially healed, he was made whole. It was complete and it was powerful because it didn't take a time of convalescence for him to get better either, did it? It was instantly whole. That speaks of complete and powerful healing on the part of the Lord Jesus. So the centurion is a man from scripture that we should know about. I'm glad I've been studying about him all week. He's a man we should know about, and you know what else? He's a man we should tell our children about. He's a man we should tell our grandchildren about. If you teach a Sunday school class of children, he's a man you should tell your Sunday school class about. Let me tell you that Jesus wants us to set before our next generation those who excel in faith, not those who excel in sports, not those who excel in politics or in business or in the movie industry, or in the singing industry. We need to teach our young people about the great saints of faith, the the true stars of faith, not the stars of Hollywood. It's so important. It's tragic that even young people who claim to be Christians are all too frequently guilty of having unholy heroes. Those, they choose their heroes from the secular world. You find this all too frequently, even among those who say they're Christians, even among true Christian young people. Their heroes are from the secular world, and they often choose those with really shabby characters. Just because somebody sings and uses Jesus' name doesn't mean that they're living a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. Who your heroes are says a lot about your character. Watch that, mothers. Watch that, especially with your young teenagers. Or I guess it's even getting younger and younger. You know, go in their room. Who do they have on posters in their room? I wouldn't let any of my kids put posters of, from the secular wor- world in their room. I wouldn't let them listen. I mean, we were very guarded. We wanted to set before them holy heroes such as this centurion, with great faith. So beware of that, okay? You moms and you grandmoms, you have great influence over the next generation. You do, so be so careful about this. All right, Jesus' response to despair. I I don't have a watch, so we're just going to go overboard probably. I forgot it. I have a rubber band on instead. (laughs) That'll do you a lot of good. (laughs) We'll be flexible. Very good, Terry. That was fast. All right, let's look at Jesus' response to despair, a widow in Nain, and for this we'll look at verses 11 to 17 of Luke. Luke is the only one who gives us this account. Luke. Luke 7, 11. All right, it says, And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Okay, so he's got a big crowd following him, Jesus. Verse 12, now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. 
and much people of the city was with her. So much people with him and much people with her. All right, verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, What? Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, or the coffin, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a great fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Let me just mention something before I go on because I might forget to say this later on. Um, First of all, I was talking about how Jesus reaches out, doesn't worry about defiling himself. Um, Here, he reached out and touched a coffin, which was, again, a no-no in the Jewish community. You did not touch the dead or you defiled yourself. He didn't worry about that, did he? Just like he didn't worry about it with the leper or with Peter's mother-in-law or... or, uh, um, with the centurion, he touched the coffin. And another thing I want to mention is in verse 17, it says, in this rumor of him, I don't like that translation, sorry to say, of the word rumor. The wor- that word is logos, and it is mentioned 320 times in the New T- Testament. Every single time it is translated as word. When you hear the word rumor, maybe back in the King James day, they didn't think of rumor as we do. When you think of rumor, you think of something that's not true, Right. But this, this was true. This was a true account. So just make sure you understand that this word or this record, this logos of him went forth. And it was a true account. It wasn't a rumor. All right. The day after, we are told, in Luke seven eleven, the day after the Lord healed the centurion servant in Capernaum, the Lord Jesus, along with many of his disciples, this would include not only the apostles, but many other disciples, and it says a great crowd of followers walked about 25 miles from Capernaum up here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. I've got this little blue line to show you. They walked 25 miles down to, into the Jezreel Valley to the city of Nain, which is on the southern border of Galilee. He's actually on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to celebrate the Passover. But en route, he stops at the city of Nain, which means pleasant. And this is the only time in the scripture that this city is mentioned. Only this one time. The small village of Nain still exists today. It's spelled different, N-E-I-N, today. And it's located on the northwest side of the mountain called Little Hermon. Did you know that every action, every word, every miracle, every step of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry was pre-planned from before the foundation of the earth? Nothing he did was by coincidence, by accident. There is no such thing. Nothing he did or said was merely a spontaneous response to something unexpected. It was no coincidence that brought him to this particular city on this particular day at the precise time a funeral procession for a young man was passing through the city gates. You know, he met the funeral procession right at the city gates. Now, you know, they buried, the Jewish people did not bury their dead within a city. They buried their dead without the city. 
you know, outside the city walls. There were no walls in this particular city, but that's beside the point. They were taking him to one of the nearby hillside caves to bury him. The only ones they buried within a city would be kings or exceptionally distinguished people. And also, um, this is, I'm just, I was reading Edersheim and all about how they handled funerals and everything. They would bury their dead the same day they died. Um, so this young man probably died earlier in the day, so they speculate this was probably sometime in late afternoon. And the funeral procession was on its way, and the women would lead the funeral procession. They would be in front of the bier or the coffin. <clears throat> so he met them at precisely the time that they were at the city gates. It had all been predetermined by the sovereign will of the triune Godhead. As always, too, Jesus was right on schedule. I mean, 25 miles he's walked, and he had it timed perfectly so that when he got there, you know, if he had been either two or three minutes earlier or two or three minutes later, he would not have met the funeral procession. This was no accidental appointment. It was a divine one. The Lord of life was, for the very first time in his earthly ministry, at least the very first recorded time in his earthly ministry, he was going to burst open the gates of death. And what better place to do it than at the gates of a place called Pleasant? <laughs> now, why do you suppose that the Lord Jesus, other than its name, selected the city of Nain to perform his first raising from the dead? And we'll talk about there's a difference from resurrection and what he does here which is, I'm going to call it raising from the dead or restoration to life. Why do you think he selected Nain? Well, it had been about 800 years since Israel had seen anyone raised from the stronghold of death. In fact, the last time had been in this very same vicinity, just about two and a half miles away in the neighboring town of Shunem. I think I have it wrong in your books. Please correct me. I have Shunen. It should be Shunem with an M. The, the prophet Elisha had raised the Shunammite son from the dead after great effort and prayer. Oh, he went to a lot of trouble. I mean, he stretched himself out on the boy and he, you know, had his arms and his lips to his lips. I mean, and he, he prayed and then he got up and he walked around and he prayed and then he went and he did it again. You know, after great effort, he raised the Shunammite's only son. And the only other raising from the dead that Israel had ever witnessed was when the prophet Elijah had also raised a widow's only son. But again, only after great effort. The restorations to life performed by both Elisha and Elijah, however, were really performed by who? By God, the power of God through answering their prayers. You know, they prayed but the power came from God. He was answering his prophet's prayers. Elisha and Elijah were mere men with no power to raise the dead apart from God. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life himself. He is God. He raised the widow of Nain's son with the omnipotent ease of his own spoken word, talking about, you know, speak the word only. That's all he had to do was say, young man, arise. And the young man arose. So there's a great difference between his power and the prophet's power. 
During the Lord's ministry, he performed three acts of raising the dead, at least that we know of. Now, some commentators say that he raised a lot of people from the dead, but only three were recorded for us, other than his own. And his own was the, a true resurrection. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. His, you know, the other guys, everyone else in the scripture that ever was raised from the dead, it was really a restoration of life. They had to die again. Somebody said that after Lazarus was raised from the dead, he never smiled again because he knew he'd have to die again. That, that probably isn't true. But, but a true resurrection is with a glorified body. Okay, None of these had glorified bodies, did they, when they were raised? They, they were back in there. And they, and they weren't really performed for the, the dead. I don't think they wanted to come back from where they were. They were performed for those who were sorrowing. Anyway, he performed three acts of raising the dead. And it's interesting to realize <clears throat> that they occurred at three different stages of death. When he raised Jairus's 12-year-old daughter from death, which we will be looking at this year. And by the way, Jairus was the ruler of the Capernaum synagogue, which the centurion of Capernaum had financed. These, You know, when you think about it, these people... Basically, all knew each other. Anyway, when he raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the death, she was still in the bed where she had died. So she had been maybe dead four minutes. You know, I'm, I'm just going to use four, all right? You'll know why. But she'd only been, she was still in the bed where she had died. Now, in this account of the widow of Nain's son, he was in his coffin, he was in his death, on his death pallet. It, wasn't a, it was an open pallet, by the way. They didn't have a coffin with a cover on it like we think of. It was an open stretcher kind of a thing. Um, but we could say he had been maybe dead four hours. He was on his way to burial. And then, of course, there was the raising of Lazarus, who had been buried in his tomb for how long? A total of four days. See, to Jesus, it doesn't matter how long a person has been dead doesn't matter how long. He can still raise him or her back to life, even after, what, thousands of years. Wondrously, this same truth stands true for those who are spiritually dead. As long as a person is still breathing, it doesn't matter if he is a child. I'm talking about spiritual dead. It doesn't matter if a, if a child, it's a child who's only sinned for a short while, doesn't matter if it's a young man who's been a sinner for maybe a good many years or whether he's an older person who has sinned greatly his entire life so that he stinketh, you know, like Lazarus. It doesn't matter. Jesus can still give that spiritually dead person spiritual life, can't he? Luke seven twelve tells us that the dead man was the only son of his mother, the one who... Um, <clears throat> the one who entered the city gates at the same time to meet this dead son is also an only son, isn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. The, the Greek word monogenes, monogenes, excuse me, means unique or only or single, is used for both this Widow's only son and also for God's only son. Same word is used. Warren Wearsby said this about the meeting of these only two sons. 
who met at the city gate. He said, one was alive, but destined to die. Who was that only son? Jesus. The other was dead, but destined to live. And that was the widow's son, of course. He, uh, <clears throat> he says, only the death of the Son of God can give life to the sons of man. We are told that when the Lord saw the widow, now remember this widow was a widow. So what does that mean? She had also already lost her husband. And she was left in a society that did very little for widows back then. I mean, once she lost her husband, she would be dependent on her son for her, her income, for her future. And now she had lost her only son. Uh, so it says when he saw her, he had what? Compassion on her. It wasn't really compassion for the son. Like I said, you know, his compassion was for her. Wait, let's assume the son was uh, a believer and that he was already better off in paradise. You know, he pro- if he had had his choice, he probably wouldn't have chosen to come back unless it would be compassion for his mother. But Jesus had compassion on the widow. The word of God tells us we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus Christ, our high priest, ever liveth to make intercession for those who belong to him. He is our sympathetic savior. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad he can understand and he can empathize with us? He knows far more about the pain and the grief and the sorrow that sin has brought to mankind than we could ever know. Can you imagine what he sees, the pain he sees and the tears he sees from, from where he sits high above? We can only see what's going on around us and it's so, it's so grievous that we can't really, you know, when millions of people die at a time from a tsunami or an earthquake or something, it's just, it goes beyond what I can understand. But he sees it all and not only does he see it happening today, he has seen it from the beginning. He knows about every tear that has ever been shed over one loss to death, the ugly consequence of sin. He himself wept over this reality as he stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And I always am amazed. I mean, he knew he was going to raise him in another minute. He knew Lazarus would be standing there, but he wept anyway because he wept over the sorrow that death has brought into this world. Because of sin, because of our rebellion. And he agonized in one of the most torturous deaths ever invented by mankind. So when he encountered this grieving, widowed mother, he knew exactly what she was feeling. He is the man of sorrows. He's well acquainted with our grief. And he responded in compassionate concern. Jesus alone, he is really the only one ultimately who can wipe away our tears, isn't he? People can come to you and they can put their arm around you and they can, they can even understand because, you know, he's, sometimes we, we're, we go through trials so we can comfort others and we understand what they're going through because we've been there. But ultimately, no one can wipe away our tears except Jesus He alone can really completely, only completely understand everything that you are experiencing from the issues of life, you know, in your times of sorrow and despair. So he is the one to turn to, isn't he? 
He is the one to turn to. One day, like the widow of Nain, you will be reunited with those you have lost in the Lord. And that's what to keep our focus on. That's what to keep our focus is on. You know, one day we will be reunited as this widow was with her son. If you are truly a child of God, of course. Now, the two sides, very quickly, I don't know what time it is. You're all wiggling like it's time. Quarter to twelve. Oh, well, if you have to go, go. I'll just finish so it's on the tape. The two sides that came together in the story were two arch enemies. One side is life and the other is death. One is Jesus and the other is Satan. One side is a friend to man, the other is a fo- his foe. Jesus told the sorrowing Martha, remember? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever believeth in me shall never die. And he asked her, believest thou this? The one who is life will one day come back to earth to reign, at which time he will put all enemies under his feet. And that last enemy that will be destroyed is what? Is death. And that will be a glorious, glorious day. Okay, we find also in this account there are two groups of people. Remember how we've been talking about two, two groups. All mankind is in one group or another. You're either following life, following Christ, You're on your way to the city, you're on your way to that which is pleasant, the city called pleasant, the celestial city, and you're rejoicing in the blessings of the Lord, Um, like these people had were because they had just heard his fantastic sermon and they had just seen him heal a dying servant boy. This is the rejoicing group. You're either in that group or you're in the group that is following death. You're following a coffin. This other group was on their way to the cemetery. They were sorrowing under the curse of sin and death. However, the good news is that the living Son of God was about to meet the dead Son of Man. So the sorrowers were not far from being with, you know, joining the group of the rejoicers, weren't they? You know, sorrow may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Remember that. Joy will come in the morning when we're up there in the city called Pleasant. Probably every adult male, or every adult, maybe a lot of the children too, in this Nain funeral procession was thinking of a time. Do you do this at funerals? I know you do, because we think alike. Was thinking of a time when they had lost or would lose someone they loved. Or, perhaps, as we all do, They were thinking of the day when it would be them lying there, cold and dead in the wicker coffin. This is how it is with all men. You know, death also is no respecter of persons. The threat of death hangs over each and every single person. And uh, this is just a fact of life, is death. Each and every one of us is one in one or the other of these two groups of people. We are either following the Lord Jesus Christ on our way to the city whose maker and builder is God, or we are on our way to the cemetery, for without Christ all are dead in our sins. We're either on the narrow way that leads to life, or we're on the broad road that leads to destruction. You know, ultimate death, the second death. All right, I'm going to close with this. But where, there is, where Christ is, you know, they say that Jesus never met a funeral that he didn't disrupt, <laughs> never attended a funeral that he didn't disrupt. Where Christ is, there is hope. In him, death has met its destroyer. There were two divine commands given by the Lord Jesus in this amazing miracle. One command was to the living, 
and one command was to the dead. And it's interesting that in the three raisings to, from the dead that Jesus gave in the Gospels, we find that he did this. He, he gave a command to the living, and then he gave a command to the dead. For example, here he says first to the widow mother, the mother of the dead son, he says what? Weep not. He gives her a command. And then he says to the dead, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Same thing with Jairus and, and that miracle. He said to Jairus, be not afraid, only believe. And then he said to his daughter, Jairus' daughter, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Same thing with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He said to them, take away the stone. Some way behind here. And then to Lazarus, what did he say? Lazarus, come forth. <clears throat> now those commands, from the human perspective, seem very impractical and even ridiculous. Here's a widow woman. She's lost her husband and now she's lost her only son. Doesn't it seem rather impossible and ridiculous for him to say, weep not? Doesn't it seem ridiculous for him to say to Jairus when he just got word that his daughter died, you know, don't be afraid, only believe? Doesn't it seem ridiculous for him to say to Martha and Mary after Lazarus has been dead four days, move the stone away? But Lord, you know, he stinketh. But to human reasoning, these commands may seem impractical and, and ridiculous. But if God has given the command, it is a justified command. He does not give inappropriate, unintelligent commands, does he? He was actually testing their faith, wasn't he? He told the woman, weep not. Can you imagine obeying that command? at such a point in time. Do, what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that when Jesus is present, there need be no weeping, and there need be no fear, as he said to Jairus, do not be afraid when it comes to death. All the tombstones of those who know Jesus as Savior and Lord will one day be taken away. All the tombstones of those who know him as Lord and Savior will be pushed to the side, and all those who know the voice of their good shepherd and hear him give the mighty command, come forth, will instantly come out of their graves. And so shall they ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. Do you know of any greater comfort than that? I don't. I do not know of a single comfort that is greater than that. And you notice Jesus always speaks directly to the dead, and they hear his voice. He speaks directly to them. Young man, arise. Damsel, arise. Lazarus, come forth. Isn't that amazing? The dead hear his voice, and they respond. And one day, you and I, if we're alive, or if we're six feet under, we're going to hear his voice. And we're going to be out of here. And we're going to go to that city called Pleasant. And then joy cometh in the morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, may we have the compassion of Christ. May we have the great faith of the centurion. 
May we have the great fear, holy reverential fear of the crowd that witnessed these things. And may we have the evidence of new life of the widow's son who sat up and began speaking for you. And Father, may we have the joy of the widow. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your divine authority over every aspect of life and death. Well, we pray in your name. Amen.